All right, all right, all right, the Foghorn. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up. The world's attention remains focused on Russia's war on Ukraine, a conflict that undoubtedly will affect the military and defense calculations of all the world's significant powers. What will change? What has changed already? We'll talk with a key member of the House Armed Services Committee, Representative Mike Gallagher, who also represents the Wisconsin District, where the U.S. Navy's Freedom-class littoral combat ships are built. But first, a quick look at world naval news. The aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford is back in service after a six-month refit and modernization period at Huntington Ingalls Shipyard in Newport News, Virginia. The ship got underway February 25th and is carrying out a series of qualification trials off the Virginia coast ahead of its first deployment later this year. The Virginia-class submarine Oregon was delivered on February 26th from General Dynamics' electric boat in Groton, Connecticut. The Block 4 submarine will be commissioned in May. On March 3rd, Poland announced it had chosen the Arrowhead 140 design from Babcock International and Talos UK for a new class of multi-purpose frigates, beating out German competitor ThyssenKrupp. The Arrowhead design is based on that of the British Royal Navy's new Type 31 frigates already building in the UK. The three frigates will be built in Polish shipyards and mark a significant upgrade for the Polish Navy. And on a sad note, in a very sad conflict, an image emerged March 3rd on social media confirming that Ukraine's largest warship, the Kravak 3-class frigate Hetman Sahadachny, was sunk pierside in a shipyard in Nikolaev, where it was undergoing a long-term refit. Unable to get underway, the ship reportedly was scuttled by its own crew. And that's a very brief look at some of the week's naval events. All right. Well, we are lucky today to have with us Representative Mike Gallagher, now in his third term representing Wisconsin's 8th District. Congressman Gallagher has emerged as one of the leading voices in a new and younger generation of lawmakers with oversight of the United States Navy. Welcome to the podcast, Congressman Gallagher. It's truly an honor to be with you. I am a subscriber. I am a devoted listeners. So if I start fanboying out on you guys, forgive me, I'll try and keep it together. Well, God love you. All right. Um, As we said in our opening, though, the Russian war in Ukraine already is changing the calculus for many nations regarding readiness, defense spending, and the value and effectiveness of political and military alliances. Just over a week and a half into this war, what are some of your thoughts of what we're seeing and what it all means? Well, the narrative is certainly that the Russians have gotten more than they bargained for. And I think on, on some level, that's that's true, right? Perhaps Putin's initial hope was that he could quickly collapse the Ukrainians' will to fight, uh, decapitate the leadership in, in Kiev, force Kolensky out. Um, and that hasn't happened. But I, I worry that we're allowing that hope to go a little overboard. And I just think it's premature to say the Russians are, are losing in any meaningful sense. And quite honestly, I don't trust some of this stuff we're getting about, oh, morale is so low among the Russian military. And, you know, logistically, this is a huge snafu. One thing I think the Russian military has proven over the last hundred years is that its main strategy of absorbing losses and pressing forward is a pretty effective, albeit inefficient one. And so even now, if Putin were to sue for peace today, he will have changed the debate uh, and moved the goalposts in his directions and, and forced 
some sort of recognition of Crimea, the Donbass, um, uh, some sort of promise for Ukraine to fo- to forego uh, NATO membership in the future. So I just worry the narrative is 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 not reflecting what's going on in the ground. I think we're in the early innings of this thing, and I I think if nothing else, what is evident is that deterrence failed. Right, deterrence our our deterrent strategy failed. That's interesting. We should seek to understand why it failed, and we should seek to learn the right lessons uh, from that. I have some thoughts on that related to the role of hard power versus sanctions and and um, sternly worded statements that I'm happy to go into. But uh, I guess my initial observations could be summarized as it's too early to tell um, you know what's going to happen on the ground. Uh, I don't think Putin's going to back down anytime soon, and I would suspect when the dust settles. Uh, he will have effective control over part, if not all, uh, of the country. Right. Well, it's the, it's overwhelming force against a very small country that is uh, that didn't have it to begin with. And by the way, I don't mean that to detract from the very real and inspiring bravery we've seen from the Ukrainian people. I mean, my gosh, I mean, just the way Zelensky has been leading from the front, using social media creatively. You know, some of the stories, I don't know if they're true or apocryphal, but you know, the, the 13 border guards who said, hey, Russian warship, go go F yourself. Uh, that should be a rallying cry for the West. We should print that on, on T-shirts. Um, you you know, you, the, right yeah. yeah, exactly. The, um, you know, you got, you got grandmas picking up rifles in Kiev to defend their city. All of that is inspiring. And I think actually giving Biden something you don't often get in geopolitics, which is a second chance. But it's not clear to me that we're um, seizing it aggressively enough. And, and again, I just don't I don't see any scenario in which Putin backs down having committed itself. And I don't know, I guess I don't know enough about the, the inner workings of, of, um, you know, the billionaire class in Russia, as well as Putin's old KGB allies to suggest whether he has uh, internal resistance that that's meaningful, uh, that would cause him to back down or, or some have some sort of palace coup. Uh, I, I just think that's a fantasy that we're putting if we're putting our hopes in, uh, in that I just I don't see any evidence that that's going to happen. So, you know, one of the aspects of this is is uh, trying to figure out what does he want? What is he trying to do? He's obviously has his has his uh, his thoughts on Ukraine and it's not a real country and it's really part of Russia and all this. But there's also the was was an effort to weaken NATO. Their calculus was that NATO would disagree. They would be that they, they, they would fraction. And this is a running effort from Putin for many, many years. No surprise there. But just as the resistance from Ukraine has surprised virtually everybody, including our intel, our intel thought he would invade, our intel did not think that Ukraine would fight back like this. And also, NATO has emerged as tight as ever, and far from being, from being fractured, it's as strong as ever. The European Union, the European Commission, there are, they have closed ranks in ways that were not anticipated. Um, so, you know, I, and including, you know, we've, we've had the last few years in this country talk about, you know, getting out of the alliance or the alliance is weak and what's the point and blah, blah. Um, that seems to have reinvigorated NATO itself. Na- in, a, in a worldwide sense, and I'm talking too much, I'm going to stop talking. NATO in Europe is a unique construct. It does not exist in the Pacific where we have a long, wide number of bilateral arrangements with people. There's no one overarching um, structure. 
But the way NATO has come together has probably got to affect a lot of the calculus about what's going on in the Pacific and what would happen if China does attack Taiwan and does expand its power in the South China Sea and, and et cetera. I mean, I mean what, it, what is your sense of what we're living through at the moment? Where is this going? Well, I mean, I agree that the, some of the statements we've seen coming from the Germans in particular have been uh, seismic shifts, uh, providing lethal assistance, committing to, to spend more on defense, meet the 2% threshold. Um, and I don't want to take away from that. And I don't want to sort of establish myself as the resident cynic in all of this. But I think for NATO, the proof will be in the pudding. And I think for years now, we've, we've sort of obsessively focused on, on inputs uh, without understanding outputs, right? On some level, I think the 2% obsession is, is kind of the wrong metric. It's a question of what do you actually buy with your defense investments and whether your weapon systems can talk to other NATO member weapon systems, or whether we have an overall plan for deterrence by, by denial. And if this galvanizes the Germans and other NATO member states to really fortify NATO's Eastern front, I welcome that development. But I just think we're a long way from that happening. And I, I'm even more skeptical uh, on the economic front uh, that this will inspire the Europeans to wean themselves off um, dependence on, on Russian gas in particular, but an overall sort of count, what I would call counterproductive energy policy uh, in general. So yes, we should be pushing NATO in that direction to the extent this is a wake-up call for everybody. If it results in us deploying intermediate range missile systems to frontline states, fortifying Poland, fortifying the Baltic states, I welcome all of those developments. But I still think it's too early to say, okay, NATO is stronger relative to Putin than it was prior to the crisis. Because again, if the dust settles and Putin has control of Ukraine, he's closer to NATO. Maybe he's weakened financially, um, diminished in other ways. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I just don't want my hope for a positive outcome to cloud my understanding of what's actually actually happening on the ground. But push back if you think I'm being too harsh. No, I think it, it is early days. Uh, Russian military might is going to prevail if only by force of arms. But also, you know, there is the question of what does victory look like for Russia? I don't think there is a victory here for Russia. I think they're, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like one of the first things they did was they captured a Chernobyl plant. Wow, way to go! Um, they almost—they—they have now attacked another, the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Um, brilliant, but um, they can't—they can't conquer the country. They, even if they put three hundred fifty thousand troops in there, it's a country of forty million that hates you. Well, you said you started out your question by asking, you know, what does Putin want? Uh, listen, I'm not an expert. I'm not a Russia expert. I'm not an expert on Putin. I'm a I'm a recovering Arabist who has tried to learn something about the Indo-Pacific in the last uh, few years um, and a knuckle dragging Marine. So there are limits to my ability. Having ingested so many crayons in the earlier part of my development, there are limits to my ability to learn new things. Um, but isn't there an element of this is that he just on an individual level wants to sort of write himself into the history books as a great man. And I think our failure to understand that and our failure to understand that he's willing to do that with the blood of innocent people is an example of mirror imaging at its worst or what H.R. Um, McMaster argues in his recent book or it calls a uh, strategic narcissism. Right. We th we're shocked that something like this could happen. Because, you know, we live in the West, right? We abide by certain rules and it's just, it's inconceivable to us that 
Putin could be so blatant in defiance of international norms or the rules-based international order. We've lost a, a, an understanding that for, for many places, countries around the world, and particularly when we're talking about authoritarians like Putin, Xi, uh, you know, the supreme leader in Iran, they don't, they don't care about the, the West rules. They don't care about, they, they, they think might makes right. And that may seem like an ancient notion to us, but that is alive and present in our anarchic system uh, today. And I think we really need to understand the consequences of that because they, they reverberate far beyond what's happening in Ukraine right now. Let's pull on that a little bit, uh, Congressman. Um, it is hard not to watch what is happening in Ukraine and think about sort of the next three levels, right? To think about what's happening or how we got here in the context of what could happen vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. What does that mean for uh, the Navy or the, the military that we want to build for the future. I mean, it really does kind of quickly turn into a multi-level chess game as you're, as you're watching and as you're concerned about what's going on with our Ukraine. You've spoken about this. You've written about this. Let's start with sort of the next level up and, and, and think in terms about uh, Taiwan. Has your thinking changed at all as a result or has it just refined and um, you know, upped your resolve with what you've already sort of believed and written about Taiwan? Well, I will. It, it has confirmed two of my priors, which always makes me nervous. And so yeah, you guys can push back if you, if you think I'm wrong. My first is that an, an argument I've made it, uh, in print before is that this emerging concept of integrated deterrence, which is going to be the intellectual foundation of uh, the Biden administration's national defense strategy, uh, the, the Secretary Austin's national defense strategy, whenever we get it, is, uh, is misguided uh, and basically is a fancy way of saying you're going to disinvest in conventional hard power and put your, put your faith in technology that has not yet been proven to work and may not be fielded until the end of the decade, which relates to my second prior that I'll come back to, uh, allies um, and, uh, and other instruments of national power. And I would argue that in Ukraine, the concept of integrated deterrence has faced its first real world test, right? Because our approach was, okay, we're going to deter Putin by using non-military instruments of power, specifically sanctions and hashtag diplomacy and, you know, the shame of the Davos crowd uh, and hope that that forces him to back down and explicitly telegraph that we're ruling out uh, additional military force, right? So that, that strategy uh, failed. It did not work. Uh, and so I think for the administration to now try and say this is an actual success case for integrated deterrence, is wrong. It's just at odds with what's happening on the ground. And if indeed the lesson they derive from it is that, you know what, we can deter Xi Jinping from invading Taiwan with the threat of sanctions and multilateral diplomacy, I think they're going to be uh, surprised, uh, which relates to my second argument that I still hold to. I, I think I think this actually expedites the timing, uh, the, the likelihood of a, of a, a Chinese move on Taiwan. There's there's been some suggestion that she's upset with Putin and they've they've publicly said that they respect sovereignty and they've tried to kind of play this, uh, you know, uh, suggest that they're not fully on board with this. But if you really dig into the 5000 word joint statement between the Chicoms and the Russians, you know, what you'll see in there is basically an agreement with Putin on his basic point, which is that NATO expansion has been provocative. You'll see a shared concern over so-called color 
uh, revolution. So I don't think this has been a brushback pitch for Xi Jinping in, in any way. And I think if he's if he's seeing Putin not achieve his objectives quickly and that the West is then waking up, the lesson he derives is, oh, I just need to be better at doing a fait accompli. And the reason I think the window is starts in a couple of years is not just because Admiral Davidson said it in testimony. I think there's a few factors that make this the decade of maximum danger, to quote Professor Andrew Erickson uh, at the Naval War College, whose work has been phenomenal on this. Um, I think you're going to you have an election in January of 24. Check me on that in Taiwan. The DPP is probably going to win. She concludes that he can't get this done via political warfare. So he's got to do it militarily. You're also going to have a brutal election in the United States where our, we're going to be at war with each other. I mean, metaphorically, uh, hopefully, of, of course. Uh, good time for to make a move while America is distracted and focused internally with a brutal political battle. Um, and she right now is 68. I mean, the clock's ticking. And that's the point that Erickson has really brought out. If you look at, he won't get a better chance than this decade because the 30s, the demographic problems start to add up, debt problems start to add up. And so all of those things in my mind conspire to make it more likely rather than less likely, both pre and post Ukraine, that she makes a move on Taiwan within this decade. And I just, it's, it's in my mind, so important to have a theory on the timing of that. And I can't prove it, obviously. That, that's just sort of, I've tried to listen to smart people and, and, and figure out and, and make a educated guess on this. But the timing is everything, right? Because if you, if you think that this is a 2020s problem as opposed to a 2030s problem, then your entire strategy changes, right? And our entire defense strategy this divest to invest nonsense makes no sense, right? If we're putting all of our resources and our hope in these systems that won't be fielded until the mid 2030s, well, how does that help you in a mid 2020s Taiwan fight? So maybe I'll just pause there. And that's why I think it's so important for us to debate and come to some understanding on the likely timeline for a Taiwan invasion, because it, it, it leads you just to a different approach in terms of your defense investments. So for the sake of time, um, l let's assume that, you, that you're right. And we've talked about on this podcast that um, Ukraine notwithstanding, that 2020s, uh, for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned, it is probably um, a, a likely time in which we will have to uh, deal with the Chinese um, either in the South China Sea with another issue or specifically with Taiwan. So if that's the case, keeping that um, sort of chess, you know, multi-level chess, let's go up another level, then what do we need to be um, investing or not divesting in with regards to the Navy and the Marine Corps? If you look into the, the, the article that I wrote called Battle Force 2025, um, the long version was with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the short was with Foreign Affairs. The theme that I think unites all of it is to prioritize the 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 now over the new. I'm not a Luddite, you know, technology is important, but even the top technological priorities of the department right now, for example, JADC2, and when is JADC2 going to be fully operational? I mean, it's probably going to be more than five years. Um, and I could argue further that, you know, JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, uh, since every service is doing their own version of it, is not really joint. Um, so uh, I guess that's the overall sort of theme that links it. It's it's here are some ideas for what we could actually do in the next three to five years without totally screwing up 
our long-term defense investments. And quite honestly, all I did was spend a year talking to a bunch of smart people and, and stealing their ideas. And I'm just trying to stoke a debate, throw, throw, some, throw some things out there in order to stoke the debate. Uh, among the 10 things that I lay out, probably the most immediate, I would say, is to really move aggressively on deploying dispersed long-range fires throughout Indo-PACOM. Um, the Trump administration got out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. It opened up this massive opportunity to deploy INF non-compliant missiles uh, throughout uh, the first island chain, and we have yet to fully seize that opportunity. The Marine Corps is doing some interesting work on that front, uh, fielding some systems that I think are promising, the Nemesis system in particular, but there's more we can do. We can do. One thing I highlight is a promising concept from Thomas Caraco, uh, where he calls for containerized launchers, where you camouflage missiles and cargo containers for easy dispersion, concealment, and decoy purposes. Um, and all of this is towards the end of really just complicating the PLA's OODA loop and making the PLA Navy, as well as sort of the, their auxiliary, auxiliary civilian fleet and the row row ferries that they're retrofitting, think twice before they try and cross the strait. Um, and if you assume the worst, that they're able to keep our carriers uh, away at a distance with the anti-Navy that they've built, and that's really what they've built in the last two decades, it's an anti-Navy via their rocket force. Well, then it really comes down to our ability to blow their stuff up when it's at or near ports in Taiwan. The other element of that is forcing the Taiwanese to invest in asymmetric defense. And so one of the things I recommend is getting a little more aggressive in terms of the aid we provide to Taiwan, putting more strings on that aid so that they are investing in mines and missiles as opposed to tanks or fighter jets that aren't going to be able to fly. Um, another thing I would highlight uh, that comes across at the beginning of the piece is um, the need to garrison U.S. Pacific territories and possessions, as well as build survivability into our existing Pacific bases, which I think are extraordinarily vulnerable uh, to Chinese rockets right now. Uh, I talk about the need to fully fund a 360-degree persistent uh, air and missile defense capability on Guam, known as the Guam Defense System, but also on the diplomatic side to move more quickly to get a deal with the compact states who are desperate for a deal and are willing to uh, expand runways to host more missiles uh, and things like that. And um, the final thing I'd say, because I could go on forever and I already have and I've bored all your list listeners, is I do think we need to do a better job of preparing for the protracted nature of this campaign. It's possible that it could be over in a matter of days or a couple of weeks. Uh, but if that's the case, my suspicion is that it will be because the Chinese have won and we've lost. If we're able to de de delay the initial invasion, we're going to have to be able to surge forces forward, and we're going to also have to make sure that we don't run out of ammo. So one of the things I talk about is building munition surge capacity now so that we don't have bottlenecks or complete uh, gaps in our production, similar to what we saw in the 2011 NATO campaign in Libya, where European militaries ran low on PGMs because they were firing at a high rate and had inadequate stockpiles. We need to stockpile it now. And I'll, I'll stop there and land on the point of, I think the lesson I take away from this Ukraine crisis is that you have to, you have to prepare prior to things going boom. It's, we think it's hard, it's gonna be hard to supply lethal assistance to the Ukrainians right now. Think how difficult it's gonna be to supply Taiwan 
if an active invasion is underway. So um, I, I, again, just trying to stoke a debate. Uh, there are a lot of areas where we can do more. You know, Sorella, you've talked uh, eloquently about how we can get creative with the LCS, for example, uh, and focus on getting the most out of our existing systems. And that's really kind of where my head's at right now is what can we do in the next three to five years to make this as difficult of a problem for the Chinese as possible? So, and just to, just to put a point on your call for munitions, uh, it takes about three years to build a single SM missile, all the variants, three years from beginning to end. So if you don't have it, you're gonna use it up pretty darn fast. Um, before we go, in your district, right on the very northern edge of your district is Marinette, Wisconsin, where Finn Cantier and Marinette Marine uh, with Lockheed Martin builds the Freedom Class Littoral Combat Ships, Saudi multi-mission frigates, and of course, Finn Cantier is the lead yard on the U.S. Navy's new Constellation Class frigate. Um, in the new budget that comes out, whenever the Biden uh, defense budget is presented in the next few weeks, there's been any number of stories that uh, under the divest to invest heading, um, a lot of the freedom class ships are built in your district are going to go away. Numbers range from two to four to half of them to all of them. But what's even more bizarre about that is the ships are still in production. There's still more building up there. Obviously you, this is your constituency. You support this, this, uh, this, this effort. The question I have for you really is, what are your comrades in Congress, bipartisan, what do you think their reaction to getting rid of so many ships at once is going to be? And what will, what will the pushback, if any, be on that? Well, I think you saw the reaction or a preview of it in the last uh, NDAA cycle, right? Where maybe the, the initial PB submission wasn't as bad as this next one's going to be. And the indications are that this next one's going to be a bloodbath for the Navy, but it was pretty bad, right? We were retiring more ships than we were proposing to build. And what you saw in bipartisan fashion, right? You had strong voices on the Democratic side, uh, Elaine Loria and Joe Courtney, foremost among them, um, joining forces with Rob Whitman, uh, me and, and the, the other people that, that tend to focus on sea power issues saying no uh, and uh, uh, you know, pushing back on the administration and ultimately pushing for an overall higher uh, top line. Um, you know, I think as it pertains to the, the sort of the LCS and the, and the freedom class variant, I mean, as I mentioned at, at SNA, the CNO says that the, the, the gear problem is fixed. Um, and uh, as I talked about there, you know, I think we have an opportunity to, to really use these platforms creatively. They're in the fleet, more coming. Uh, we're just not in a position to turn away hulls that could contribute to the fight, even in unusual ways. So, you know, one idea is for it to serve as a stopgap craft for the Marine Corps to enable distributed ops until the light amphibious warship comes online in meaningful numbers. Um, you could put Marines equipped with anti-ship missiles on board and see if the LCS can be littoral launch ship for expeditionary ops. You could use it as a mothership for unmanned swarms or as a command and control node. Um, all of these things, I think, are ideas worth exploring. As it pertains to the frigate, um, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that we continue to move in the right direction, learning a lot of lessons from LCS. I think it's imperative that we don't recapitulate some of the mistakes on that program in the frigate program, which is to say changing requirements, um, you know, layering on a bunch of fancy new things as opposed to really harnessing what I think is the reason that Fink and Terry Marinette Marine won the competition, which is that it was a proven design that was fielded by other countries that we are 
um, building on uh, as opposed to inventing something entirely new, if that makes sense. So I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic both on the work that the, the yard is doing um, as well as I think the bipartisan support for increasing shipbuilding in the United States Congress. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. Okay. Well, Congressman, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. Uh, our guest today has been Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin. Um, I, I will say before we go, though, that um, I, I really I don't know, enjoy and impressed by, think you're effective. The, uh, the sort of tag team you have with Elaine Luria from uh, Virginia, um, a Republican and a Democrat, pretty much on the same page uh, when it comes to maritime issues and naval issues. You, you both are, I, I think, very effective. You're a great voice for the present and for the future. And uh, I, 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 I hope you, uh, both of you, hang around for quite a while because it's worthwhile. Again, our, uh, our guest has been Congressman Gallagher. Thank you so much for being here today, sir. Thank you. Thanks for what you guys do. It has a big impact. Thank you. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Mr. Savello has some thoughts. It's hard to argue with any of what Mike Gallagher just shared. Divesting to invest without a near-term plan seems even more silly now than when it was first offered as a bridge to future technology. Integrated deterrence did fail in preventing conflict in Ukraine, and now it seems to be a non-starter as a serious grand strategy for dealing with China. Look, I give the administration and our allies credit for how they are navigating this crisis. But more is needed if we are to prevent similar events from occurring in Asia. Our naval and national leadership must realize that today's thinking, planning, and budgeting is insufficient in dealing with state-on-state -state competition and conflict. This doesn't mean that we just go out and buy or spend on legacy platforms haphazardly. Conversely, it does mean that we get our act together and quickly evolve our thinking and subsequent spending. In this regard, the lessons from the Russian invasion may actually be a gift to the United States. It may be the wake-up that is needed to force serious thought, serious investment, and serious leadership now, instead of kicking the intellectual and strategic can down the road. Our window for preventing, and if necessary, repelling an invasion of Taiwan began when the Russians invaded Ukraine. Let's ring out every lesson of why integrated deterrence failed. Let's make the right short and long-term investments in hard power, and let's ensure we are ready to prevent and repel Chinese aggression before another democracy is attacked. Time is a commodity the free world no longer enjoys. Indeed. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.